I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Because as many of you, I'm going to do a quick canvassing. How many people here have read Innocence and others? And there is no, it's fine. It isn't a test test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just want to so, know. So about to, uh, kind of half, and half, half maybe, think? or a third. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to talk about it with a certain degree of taking that into account, but we won't, one, we won't do spoilers, right. and we won't assume too much knowledge, will we, Dana? Right. I mean, it's difficult for you. You have got ultimate yeah. knowledge, <laughs> but we're going to try hard. But one of the things that I think is my first kind of line of entry into this amazing book is to talk about how many narratives it juxtaposes mm-hmm. and how unsure we are as to which of them is real, what their status is in the book, right. what kind of document that they are. Right. And to that end, we were talking about it earlier today, you're going to do a couple of readings right. for us. And little ones. Little, little ones. ones. Don't, little Don't ones. panic. Don't panic. It's only going to be um, little ones. <laughs> that give us a real flavour of, of, well, of two of the voices anyway, right. or two right. of the, the, the protagonists. And we may even sneak in another one. Do you want to kick off with... Sure, sure. With, um, so um, this is about three minutes. It's um, from early in the book. One of the, one of the, main, the main character, I suppose, is um, Meadow. And she's, uh, in this part, she's 18. And she's trying to figure out how to become a filmmaker. And it's 1985. And um, she's found this space in upstate New York in a sort of an empty warehouse that she's going to live in. And so I think that's all you really need to know to hear this part. All spring, Meadow had risen at five every day, not for any practical reason, but for the feeling of immersion. She needed to feel the pain of her devotion. She drove the old Subaru down to Route 5S, which runs parallel to the Mohawk River. She knew it was a horse trail once, the one narrow pass between the mountain ranges if you needed to go west And of course, everyone always needed to go west. First, the Erie Canal paralleled the Mohawk, then the railroad, then I-90. Meadow loved how each thing remained, even as it was surpassed by new technology. The river, the canal, the railroad, and the interstate lay right next to one another like a graphic depicting two centuries of progress. But her attention was drawn to the freight trains. Their approach and passing were infinitely more beguiling than the semi-trucks that monotonously thundered down I-90. Meadow discovered that she could get to the tracks in a number of unprotected places in between stations. Sometimes she had to climb over a fence. At first she brought her lightweight Super 8 camera, but later she used her video camcorder. Other times she set her up her expensive 16mm and made Deke come to record sound. Oh, the sound of a train. The first rhythmic sounds of the approach. The wheels of the train clicking fast against the tracks. The way the rhythm gathered and the volume increased as the train grew closer, it created a train approaching, that is, its own suspense. Not suspense exactly, momentum that intensified and created a need for satisfaction. And then, just as she anticipated, the sound built to a roar. The train went by in a huge rush. 
the clamor as it rattled the switch track, the whistle announcing its passing if it approached a station, the beeping alarm of the crossing signal if it cut through a road. The passing was a satisfying rush. You were in it, the longed-for moment, the powerful mechanical thing speeding by and dwarfing you. It overwhelmed you, but even in the midst of it, you knew it would be over soon. The noise, the movement, the friction of metal on metal, it will all pass you by. Meadow filmed the trains by lying in the cold, wet mud and pointing the camera right at the point of contact of wheels on tracks. She also filmed pointing the camera at the train from the same vantage. She filmed them from far away like a train passing in an old country song. She boarded the passenger train in a tiny station in Amsterdam, rode it one stop to Schenectady, then boarded a westbound train back to Amsterdam. She spent the short rides kneeling in the joint between the two cars. She stuck her clam mark close to the gap where she could see and hear the tracks as the train rushed over them. She saw a blur where the ties would be and the camera lurched when the train lurched. She practiced keeping the camera steady. Then she held her body loosely and let the camera lurch with the train. The mechanical solidity and simplicity, the weight of the train on the track, the power of the constant friction, all of this she wanted to find a way to put in a film. And the longing of the train, the Saturday reproach of a train whistle in the distance that seemed to say, why are you here and not on a train? Going, going, gone on a train. Meadows sent her film to a lab in New York City on 44th Street. She collected the reels and watched them on the editing console in the studio she had set up in, in her Gloversville warehouse. She marked the film with wax pencil. She had two-minute or eight-minute segments clipped to a wire and hanging around her. She tried the sound out of sync so that the noise didn't match the images. She tried it synced, then she varied the volume so the sound dropped in precise places. Then she abandoned the sound she recorded altogether. Variables, so many of them that they overwhelmed her. Other times the possibilities excited her so much that she got up in the middle of the night to work or take notes. Meadow tried to add some of the Britain music to her films, then she tried something more repetitive and tense, Steve Reich, or something lush and melodic, Gershwin. Music can invisibly amplify, or music can be an ironic counterpart to the image. Music can seduce or make you feel slightly off, uncomfortable. She always thought that a pushy film score was cheating, but she realized maybe she just wanted to eliminate variables to make things simpler. She was simple, plain. She knew nothing. She needed to see movies. How do they use music, sound effects, silence? There's true silence, which feels like negative sound that almost sucks you out. And then there is movie silence with ambient sounds like breathing and chair scraping. She paired her train images with music bright and nostalgic. Then just the sound of the river, which seemed so pastoral and almost invisible next to the train, but now suddenly had a fighting chance for her attention. Then she filmed the outmoded, obsolete, obscure Mohawk River the train in deep background. She filmed just the river, untrained or pre-trained. She cut these together. The river disturbed and obliterated by the train in a logical sequence. In a sequence of no logical chronology, the left and right expectations resisted. You lose logic, you lose legibility, it unnerves. Yes, she shot the untrained, unmanned world, birds, river, the wind on the leaves. The river roar made faint by the train roar, but then it returns after the train passes. If she took away the sound and let the train pass in the background without its steady clack, 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 it still found its rhythm in your head. You supplied the clack, clack, clack from a hundred other movie or real life trains. You could do that, playing the sounds already in people's heads, the memory of trains. But not even that, the memory of train scene in movies. Was it fair or good or right to count on, even consider, an assumption of memory? But isn't that what all film counted on, a kind of shared memory of everything we'd seen in the movies?
Dana, thank you. That's a fantastic passage, but also just brilliant for the purposes of <laughs> illustrating various uh, things about the book, one of which is we learn something about Meadow, that she's an obsessive, a maniac, a maniac <laughs> and notice her, that there are certain things that, things that she's interested in and certain lengths that she will go to and thought processes she yes. will have um, that set her apart and ultimately yes. lead her to become a really acclaimed documentary maker. But also, how interesting that you choose trains, which in reality and in culture, in American culture particularly, have such a kind of pull for people. That yes. idea of endless movement, yes. of a symbol of endless movement. Yes. And progress, I guess. Yeah, and, and of course, there's a big section. Meadow makes lists in the book, and there is a big section where she lists all the, in the next section, she lists all the books, all the movies that have shown trains that she can remember. Um, and uh, that list um, is endless, actually. I mean, it isn't in the book, it has an end, but in, in reality, since I wrote the book, people keep sending me emails saying, you forgot about this, you forgot about this. I'm like, oh my God. Well, it is but it is a great thing to film. A train is, a, is, a, is an amazing industrial object, yes. So it's enterprise, it's movement, it's exploitation. And it's obsolete, it's, and yet and it's, it's still obsolete. around. You love obsolete technology, or nearly obsolete technology, do you not? And yeah. nowhere so, so much more than in this book. Yes, that's true. Yes. Where's that come from? Um, I think the thing about it is that um, I, I like writing about the recent past, because I can remember it for one thing, and what you remember has a kind of special quality, what sticks in your mind. So when I think about using telephones the way we used to use a telephone when I was growing up, um, I remember vividly what we used to do, and I'm also struck by what we don't do anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't really use our phones for talking on the phones very often. Um, we usually text or email. And, uh, and I think there's reasons for that. I think there's reasons we kind of stop doing something. The phone is very intimate. And I had this memory of getting a crank call when I was at college that was really unnerving, which I just put in the book. Jelly gets the, the character of Jelly gets that call. So yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's partially a way of thinking about the present, um, but because it's in the past, you can see it more clearly, and you have this sense of your own memory to kind of guide you as to what, what, what is significant, mm, I think, mm. yeah. And then also, um, I have, a, there's, it's not really nostalgia. I don't think nostalgia is the right word, because I think there's something about taking a familiar object and defamiliarizing it, which is, we all know is what fiction does. If you defamiliarize something, you can notice something about it that's not received and, and new. Um, if you're writing about a toothbrush, you want to say the one thing about a toothbrush that everybody knows is true, but is, no one has ever said before, right? And you can only do that by looking newly at it, right? Defamiliarizing it, turning it upside down. Like when painters turn something upside down so they can really see the shape and not see the idea of it that's already set in their head to get past the conventional view. So I think that something in the past has more defamiliarization too. Mm -hmm. So when something you use is with you all the time, it's very hard to have that new eyes. But when something's a little bit estranged from you, it's, very, it's easier to defamiliarize and sort of find the weird, precise detail that's going to open it up. But it's also a way, isn't it, of thinking about something as kind of layers of the past that we all experience. Right. So at some point, the technology that you describe was absolutely integral to people's right. lives for some reason. Yes. Now it's obsolete. Yes. And this is a process we go through many, many times in our lives in many contexts. Right, and the fun, funny thing about it is it's just sort of all still around, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, still, we can still sell a t send a telegram, right? We can yeah. still ride a train. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not but as it's yes. not as important. Yeah. Um, I wrote a train today. It was really lovely. Was it? Yeah. I wrote from In Edinburgh to here. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, we you don't have the crappy broken down Amtraks that we have in the U.S. You have beautiful trains. I feel if we get on to kind of commuter tales, we'd go in a very different direction. Okay, okay. But um, because we've been talking about phones, yeah. the other, perhaps most significant part of right. your narrative is really about phones and that relationship uh, to phones. And I wonder if you want to, to read sure. that, a snippet from that An too. even shorter part. Okay. So I think what, what's interesting in the book that I think a lot of people comment on is there are these two narrative threads that do not connect till two, three quarters of the way through the book. So there are, there are sort of thematic connections between them, but then it, it, you know, I think you can start to guess what will happen. But they're, so for a long time, they're really very separate, right? Yeah. And you don't know, that's part and of you the don't experience know. Yeah. reading the novel. And I kind of how. just thought, how far can I push this off before somebody gets you know, frustrated with me. So, uh, yeah, it was push, it, you know, it just it happened. There was a lot that had to happen. And then I wanted it to be that when they the met, I wanted that to be more of the climax of the book mm. and the consequences mm. of that to kind of propel the end of the book. So, um, so I'm going to read from the other character, Jelly, and she is, um, she's a, uh, in her 40s and she lives in Syracuse. And this is also the part that we're going to see her in. Is, this takes place in 1985 as well. And this is when we first find out about her. And Jelly is not her real name. Uh, Jelly and Jack, 1985. Jelly picked up the handset of her pink plastic trim line phone and the dial tone hummed into her ear. She tilted the earpiece slightly away from her and she heard the sad buzz of a distant sound seeking a listener. How many times she had fallen asleep after she said goodbye and not managed to get the thing on the cradle. The little lag when his phone was hung up, but you were still on the line in a weird half-life of the call, semi-connected, followed by the late, final late disconnection click, then silence, and then if you didn't hang up, sharp, insistent beeps. These were the odd ways the phone communicated with sounds, urgent beeps to say hang up, long belled rings to say answer, rude blasts of a busy signal to say no. The phone always telling her things. She pushed the 11 buttons, the one the area code, the number, zeroing in, the nearly infinite combinations ousted, her fingertips not needing to feel the grooves of the numbers, but feeling them nevertheless. So many distractions unneeded and unwanted. She had to concentrate to keep the information away. There was a bird outside trilling at her. It was at least 15 feet from the closed window, but it still bothered her. It must be in the Chinese oak in the courtyard. The ring of another person's phone sounded so hopeful and then it grew lonelier. It lost possibility, and you could almost see the sound in an empty house. He didn't have an answering machine. Make a note of that. A distinction. You can let it ring all day. Is that true? Has anyone ever tried it? The plastic rubbed against her jaw and her ear. She tilted it away again. If she lay on her side and let the receiver rest on her head, using a hand only for balance, she could talk for hours. Hello, said a male voice that cleared itself as it spoke. So the end of the word had a cough pushing through it. Then came another cough. Was it the first time he had spoken today? Or had she woken him up? Roused from sleep was a special, intimate opportunity. She closed her eyes and focused on the white of ease, of calm, of joy, the pure and loving human event of calling a stranger, reaching across the land and into a life. Hello, she said, her voice sliding easily through the L's to the waiting, hopeful O. 
She always takes her time. Nothing makes people more impatient than rushing. Who is this? It's Nicole. Nicole, I think you have the wrong number. This was a crucial moment. Is this Mark Washburn? Uh, no, it isn't. Who is this again? Nicole, I'm a friend of Mark's. I thought it was his new number. No, that's weird. I know Mark. I mean, he's a good friend of mine. Oh my, how awkward. I am so, so sorry I disturbed you. Uh, she rarely used uh, but it was an important wordish sound that introduced a powerful unconscious transaction. Used correctly, not as a habit or a rhythmic tick, it invited another to complete the sentence. An intricate conjoining, it was an opening without content, just the pull of syntax and the human need to complete. Uh, Jack Cusano. Jack Cusano, not Jack Cusano, the record producer. Uh, yeah. Jack Cusano, who composes film scores, the gorgeous work you did on those Robert DeMarco films. That's right. He laughed. His laugh cleared out his throat a bit more. She lay back on her pillow, held the phone so it barely touched her cheek. She imagined her voice going into the transmitter, sound waves being turned into electrical pulses, up the wires to the phone lines to a Syracuse switching station, turned into microwaves speeding across the country with the memory, the imprint of her exact tone, her high and low frequencies, her elegant modulations, to the switching station in Santa Monica, sending electric current up the PCH to a Malibu beach house and into Jack's receiver. Undoubtedly, a sleek black cordless phone, so fast too, instantly made back into a sound wave by the tiny amplifier near his ear. All that way, all those transformations, but no distortions, a miracle of technology. The sound was as clear as speech in a room. She could, she could, amazing. Hear the ocean in the background, a gull, the sound of water pulling back from beach. She swore she could hear the sun shining through his west-facing windows. One of the things I always think about that bit is, God, how does he not realize he's being had? But he doesn't, and of course he wouldn't. So He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to, and why would he? So instantly we are in a totally different relation as the reader. And the way that you're setting this up in all these narratives that you juxtapose, we know more than the people within them, but we don't know everything. We're still right. bamboozled. Just good. tell me kind of roughly how this book just began to sort of grow as an idea. Yeah, um, the books, uh, the structure became very important in the book. I had this first person section that starts the book that is a, an, an internet essay with comments and so on. And it has, it immediately reveals itself to be not quite true. It sort of gives you hints that it's not quite true. And if you, and then at the end, the comments reveal that it's not true. So I thought, well, that's weird. I knew when I had this voice, really, and, I, and she was telling her story about her origins, how she became a filmmaker. I knew that she was lying, but I didn't understand. I just knew that the, the voice was telling you something to distort. Uh, but I didn't know, know exactly what that meant. And so I started with that, so that, that voice mm -hmm. and that character. And I had that for almost a year before I, and I had this idea of a separate book, or I thought for a while that she would be the one who calls men and seduces them on the phone, or, and then I realized, no, there was gonna be this Jelly character. Um, and she was inspired by this, um, this real life uh, catfisher, um, from the 80s who used to call men in Hollywood. And I had read about her, uh, and she was fascinating. Um, but it was it really kind of described, it interviewed all the men that she conned, but it didn't, you didn't really understand 
what, how exactly she did it, and you didn't really know what it was like for her. So, and at the same time, this movie Catfish had come out. Do you remember that? And, um, and that was another film where a woman, more in the internet age, had uh, pretended to be a younger, attractive woman. And, you know, these film, these documentary filmmakers go and, you know, expose her. And it's really traumatic to watch. And so, so much of that was fed into this idea of like, what if you are, when you, what if you make a film about somebody and reveal them? What does that mean? What do you, you know, so I had got into the site more ethical questions of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I got this idea of this seducting, this sort of catfishing idea where was, a, was interesting to me. I guess I'm attracted to questions I can't answer. And I wondered about if you're seducing someone in that way, how you think it's going to turn out. Because you're always going to get called, right? Like there's no, what's your end game? So usually a con artist wants your money or something like that. Um, but this is like you're gonna, at some point they're gonna say, I want to see you or I want to see your picture. And then you gotta move on. So what is it? Is it power? It's just the moment. Is it love? Could it be love? And so all of that was like my thinking. I wanted to find it out, and so I had to write these characters to kind of discover that. So those two things, I think, like the idea of making something that compromises someone else, and then also this idea of seducing someone for, for a maybe love. But they kind of have an affinity, these two yes, yes, characters. They, they, as it turns out, if you write them into the same book, they start to really have a lot in common. <laughs> but the your brain you know, does that, yeah. That idea of the confidence trick, which yeah. is, you know, kind of at the heart of that, of yeah. that uh, part of the narrative, is a very complicated one. It is. Anyway, yeah. you know, her concealment when she is catfishing and ringing up these guys is to do with her own lack of confidence in some ways. Power in others. What does she take from them? What does she give to them? Right. The whole idea is very, very complicated. Now. Well, I mean, because from, from thinking about that, you get this idea of she believes that she's being true in some way, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that the actual truth is that she is this seductive, beautiful woman, and she's just not meant to be in this, this body, you know? And, um, and so she can only be truly herself on the phone. I think that's her argument. Of course, if the other person doesn't know that you're doing this, then you know, that's more complicated, mm. right? Um, and of course, people end up getting their feelings badly hurt. Uh, so that, that, comp that was interesting, too, the, what, the story you tell yourself. And the same with Meadow. She's very good at getting people to let her film them. And people are very willing to be filmed, and then, but not really understanding what they're giving up when mm. they allow themselves to be filmed. So she's very good at sort of seducing people into letting them film her. And then she, um, is she, the story she tells herself, which is all these stories are partly true. The story we tell ourselves are, have truth in them, but they're not the full story, is that she wants to um, tell the truth about the people she's making films about. She has an obligation to, to rip away the artifice and give you the brutal truth, no matter who suffers, which is almost always not Meadow, right? But um, so, so yeah, so those kinds of things all kind of kept feeding each other. It, I mean, it is interesting. One of the things that uh, an artist of any kind will often say, with great justification, of, you know, I am trying to get at some kind of truth. Yeah. And that is uh, a reason for all sorts of artistic, possibly ethical liabilities to yes. take place. And yes. I wonder if in this... Well, especially because who's the judge what the truth is, yeah. to a certain and, extent, right? Or what damage is done. I wonder right. if you... 
um, are taking a view on this in a way that one of the other characters in the book is a very mainstream stream filmmaker. Meadows' friend is a very mainstream, very successful yes. filmmaker, essentially for women. She makes kind of, yes. kind of rom-coms, I suppose. Yes. Is that fair? Well, yeah, she kind of, I think she makes sort of raunchy female comedies or... Her, her, I, you know, she's very interested in humor, and she, her idea is to, I mean, her interest is to take existing forms and sort of sub, subvert them a little bit, smuggle in her radicalism, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's what I think she would argue, is that she wants things to be, she thinks the mainstream is the place where you're going to affect things. And Meadow is, uh, you know, much more on the margins um, in her aesthetic. So they have this conflict. They're best friends. They grew up together. And through most of the book, they're kind of on again, off again friends. They're sort of mean to each other. They're nice to each other, but they're very connected. And, and that's a big part of the book, mm. too, is that friendship. And that was also something I was thinking about when I was writing. Is like, you know, a, a friendship that lasts a lifetime is interesting to me because I think you, you can't really replace that person who's known you as a child um, and knew what you thought you wanted to be. And there's a sort of humility, like it's humbling to be around those friends because they can remind you of what you said you were going to do and what you used to want mm. to do. Mm. And so, um, but also there's this weird thing where with friends you, um, and I think it's true, uh, Carrie says this in the book, that, um, you know, unlike a marriage, uh, which you can just sort of, you know, if it starts to not work, you get divorced. Friendships can, you know, you can be very lopsided, you can not talk for a year, and then you come back together. So they have a kind of durability to them mm, mm. Um, that seemed interesting to me. So, mm. yeah. I wanted to ask you uh, the, the world's most obvious question about this book, which is its obsession with film, its yeah. preoccupation with film. And, of course, it's a very sort of um, distinctive thing to choose to do, to write about right. one art form in the confines of another art form. And you could also say that a lot in this book is to do with sound and in a sort of tangential sense, music, therefore. Right. Um, and just tell us, I mean, your last book, Stone Arabia, was also about the idea of documenting a life. That's true. Through film, wasn't it? That's true. Uh, but no, through um, a, a written chronicle. So he, this, in the last book, there's a character who's a kind of a secret rock star. He's a failure in life. Uh, as a rock star, but in his, he keeps a, 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 a scrapbook where he's a huge star and he interviews himself and he writes reviews for himself and uh, this is actually based on my stepfather and uh, <laughs> <laughs> with his permission um, and uh, and yeah, so I think that, that, that and then someone tries to film him, that his niece his niece makes a documentary, about, makes him, a documentary about him, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right so she makes a documentary about, and there is a scene from his documentary where she questions him so all and this kind of recording life yes, is yes. kind of, you and, know, and really curating his life for some purpose. Um, yeah, uh, I think the thing about what appealed to me in this about film was I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't writing. I, I don't like it when books are like pretend to be talking about paintings, but they're really talking about writing. You know, or I'm gonna have a composer, but it's really about writing. And um, I really wanted to just be thinking about film when I was writing about film and not thinking about my own process or my own ideas about writing. Now, of course, there's always overlap with any aesthetic, uh, with any art, right? But, um, so that, and then the question is, when you're, reason why it appealed to me, um, it seems perverse to write about films in, in a novel, but um, you get the, you have the opportunity to, to describe somebody's consciousness while they're watching a film, right? 
So that seemed mm -hmm. interesting to me. Mm -hmm. You have the narrative of the film that you're describing, and most of the films in the book are imaginary, which was also fun. But uh, so you have but the quite a few aren't. Quite uh, a few aren't. Yeah, there's, yeah, but the ones that are kind of lengthily described are imaginary. Sure, sure. Yeah, except for daisies, which is real, right. They, the, the imaginary and the real inhabit the same book, in, and that's part of fun for it, I hope, is that you kind of like, that lends reality to the imaginary, and maybe it lends fictional qualities to the real, I don't know. But uh, so having them both in the book seem important, and in the other books it's that way too. But I, I guess, um, so yeah, you, when you're watching a film, you're engaging the narrative, but you're also thinking about your associations with it, your own life. Ideas are coming to you, memories are coming to you. Um, so, and you're noticing things that somebody else would notice in a different way. You're, you're engaging with the art object, and I'm very interested in that, consciousness. And I think the novel's a good place to write about consciousness and what it feels like to engage in something. And I think partially because I spend so much of my life reading and watching movies and being on the internet and doing these things um, where I'm interacting in that way, that I am interested in that experience. I'm interested in writing about that experience and trying to be very precise and defamiliarizing it and being, mm -hmm. you know, what, is it, what does it feel like on your body to be in a movie theater and watching this film? You know, so like not forgetting the body. I had this big sign over my, over my bulletin board, which was like, body. You know, <laughs> your instruction to touch self. the body, <laughs> and that was like really important. That the book has a lot of uh, you always know when Jelly's touching her phone, what it feels like mm -hmm. on her face, and all that. Mm -hmm. I really wanted that tactile experience of rather rather than this kind of abstract idea of being on the phone mm -hmm. or watching a movie or whatever, because it is we are still in our bodies while we do these mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. So so that's interesting to me. Yeah. So so that was so the the films depending on what the narrative needed would be presented in different ways. Sometimes just a screenplay. Sometimes you see the film being made from the point of view of the filmmaker, and then sometimes you see it being watched later by someone else reporting on it. And it narratively gives you a lot of opportunities because you can sort of find out what happens when somebody goes to see the movie. You find out what happened when. And this is not a spoiler because it's on the back of the book. Meadow does make a movie about Jelly. You probably, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's how we, we find out about that one sort of after, after it's all gone down when her friend Carrie goes to see that movie. Yeah. And you talk about actual movies. So you talk about their experience of watching Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Right, right. I do talk as, about yeah. you know When they're young and they don't get it, they don't like it. Yeah. And then years later, it seems totally different right. to, to Meadow. But yeah. I, w I mean, it is a book that makes you want to go and watch yeah. films. It really is. Yeah. Um, but I, I do just, love, I am obsessed with movies. That's true. I noticed that you, I'm sure you've done this on many occasions, but, but this was uh, sort of via your publisher. Uh, here, you, you have a list of a kind of, you know, important yes. films in the, in the making of the book. And it might be something that one of the characters has been touched by or something that yes. they do think of something. And I noticed, um, and this is sort of way into talking a little bit about gender, yeah. that so many, and I kind of had to jot them down, there are men and there are women, but the men are Tarkovsky, Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, um, Castavetes. The women, Goddard, the women are Amy Heckerling, Shirley Clark, Nicole Holofcina. Like Agnes Varda. Agnes Varda. They are people who cineasts right. will, and, uh, and some others will be familiar with, but they're not household names. Right. And well, I felt yeah, that was that something, something yeah. that you were kind of getting at in the book as well. Yeah, that's the world we, we live in. It's changing, but yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But that, of course, in and this book gives them a space. Alice gives uh, Guy okay. Blanchet, too, right? Mm. Yes. Mm. No one's, yeah, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> the female film. But she was like a, you know, a, a very early mm. filmmaker. Yeah. And you have quite a long scene of, of the project of them attempting to. Yeah, they reenact, which re I totally, her. I stole from, uh, from, from uh, this filmmaker, uh, Madden, who does seances of, of lost films. And I, I put him in the acknowledgments. I give him credit for it. But I just, you know, I, I, uh, I have Meadow do that thing where she, she has a film, reads about films that no longer exist, and then she makes them um, as one of her projects. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I wondered what you were trying to get at uh, by making, you know, these two female filmmakers. Um, what space they have because they are sort of not as um, they're not lifted up as high as their male counterparts, right. and what limit? What is the kind of trade-off with the opportunities they have? You know that great kind of thing about female artists have such a great time because you know nobody ever notices them. Uh, well, I mean, hmm, I didn't think about it that much. I was thinking more of, I mean, Meadow has a, a lot of privilege in the book. She's, you know, she really does, and she does have a, you know, there's a. I was very interested in this idea of of being humbled of sort of being sure of yourself and then in middle age losing that certainty and having some clarity about who you are and that you've, you're compromised in some way. And, um, and so for Meadow, it was important that she had a lot and then, um, and still ended up in a, you know, in a, and, and that, that was compelling to me. And then I think Jelly is more someone who doesn't have a lot, you know, she's got a disability for a while, she's, she doesn't have any money, she's, she's older, she's overweight, she doesn't, she's not beautiful, Meadow's also really beautiful, you know, so there's just like that, that sense of, um, you know, what it means to sort of live in that space from the beginning and, or then come to that space later, but sooner or later, you always get to that space, I guess is what I'm saying. That, that to be alive is to be humbled, mm. you know, mm. um, by the terms. So, so yeah, I mean, I, and I think that a lot of it, it gets played, there are mostly women in this book. There are some men, and uh, I hope they're, they're vivid characters, but it's true that the book is mostly about these three women. And, um, and so I think that there, there is a moments where they discuss, there's a moment where, where she gets uh, treated very poorly by New York Magazine, Meadow, and it kind of ruins her career where they kind of talk about her as a monster and a handmaiden to monsters, they call her, because she mm. makes this movie about the dirty war and she kind of spends a lot of time on the perpetrators. And so she gets exposed and, and, they, um, and, sh and, I, and Carrie says, you know, they would never call Errol Morris a handmaiden, right? Like what, and look at this sexy picture of you. And mm -hmm. so there is some conversation about that, about how you get treated differently, but it wasn't really the focus. I just thought like in this world, they're just gonna be artists. And maybe that's my feeling is like, you know, to always have the, the kind of like, have it always be somewhat, I mean, it is sort of about feminism in a way because it is about women, but it's not necessarily, um, I didn't want that to be the preoccupation of the characters. No, I wanted them no, just to just go forward and do. Right. You know? I think you smuggle stuff in much more obliquely. Yeah. And uh, on a very tiny aside here, Jelly, which to me sounded like a kind of rather adorable sort of nickname, we find out a lot later in the book that she basically, it's because she thinks she looks like a donut. Or her boyfriend. Or her boyfriend thinks she does. But then she adopts that. She kind yes. of looks at herself and thinks, I am a donut. Which it works better if you're American and 
don't say jam, don't well, you? Well, yes. It's yes. Still, once you work it out, it still yes. works. And I'm like, oh my god, I Jolly just thought it was because yeah. she was kind of sweet. Yeah. But no. Well, it's it is. She it is the it way is, she looks. And people are mean to her. Yes. Yes. Well, no. Her boyfriend says she's sweet. She's soft on the outside and sweet on the inside. So he calls her jelly. Yeah. Or jelly she, donut. Yeah. She makes that into a into something to yes, herself yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, she definitely doesn't like her body. Can we talk? A lot of people don't like their bodies. <laughs> you mentioned just the body is uh, the tyranny of the body is is a big part of yeah. It's a big part of this book. Oh actually. yeah, really yeah, yeah. I mean Orson Welles. The, there's a fake Orson Welles in the beginning of the book, and uh, yeah, he's got his the tyranny of his body yeah. being so overweight. Yeah, it's old it's Orson Welles. Yeah. yeah, it's like fan fiction, but he's old and fat. Yeah. But so it's not very. Yeah. It's a pure <laughs> opening chapter actually, yes. in many ways that you don't yes. come back to exactly, but it sort of stands there as a kind of but, uh, epigraph in a way for the book. Yeah, and I've, and I've related very much to this because, you know, as a middle-aged person, you know, I, you, on the one hand, I feel a tenderness toward my body because I've had it for so long. But on the other <laughs> hand, it seems increasingly to be my enemy and, uh, you know, and to disappoint me. And, uh, and it's always been that way. Even, you know, when I was young, I always had those, you know, a very, very a great ambivalence about the body I was given, as most, I think, people do, uh, and certainly most women do. But these specific women, yeah, and, and, and I do think that that was interesting, too. And of course, yeah, and I, and I felt enormous sympathy for, the, for Orson. Yeah. Fake Orson. Yeah, fake Orson, Faux Orson. does not have a good time, no. let us I, just you know, say. I, yeah, I felt, it was interesting that, that Meadow fell in love with him, even in her imaginary way in that story, as the old guy, you know, the old sort of failure, right, disappointment, end of life thing was interesting to me. And I think it tells you something about her, but she does like failures. Can I ask you a little bit, just, you just mentioned it briefly, um, Jelly you, you doesn't have a lot going on in her life, things are not working that easily for her. Um, she has a disability. Her disability is that she suffers a temporary blindness. It's not. Yeah, she's she has not, meningitis. She's, she's only partially blind for a while. Yeah. I'm just really interested in that the way that you used the idea of sensory loss in the right. book, right? Because it's a be, it's very kind of strongly used. Well, you know, I have a hearing loss. I wear hearing aids, and so it was interesting to me to think about what happens when you lose one of your senses what your relationship is to your other senses. So I was one very obsessed and fetishized hearing. And so Jelly is almost all about the voice and hearing. So I think that was me kind of thinking about those things, about the experience, how it changes your relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it just seemed right to have that mm -hmm. character that way. Can I ask you, just before we go uh, to questions from the audience, which we must in a, in a second, um, Thinking about uh, the kind of writing that you do, thinking about writers whom you're often spoken of in the same breath as, like Rachel Kushner, for example. Right. And I've been thinking a lot about people like Chris Krause, Sheila Hetty, uh, mm -hmm. female artists who often reflect on the idea of the novelist as artist and as right. maker. Right. And the extent to which that is sort of be called, becoming called autofiction. Not in the sense that it draws right. necessarily directly on right. it, but it has kind of play with the notion of women revealing themselves. Right. I wondered if that sort of rang it, if that chimes at all with you. What my well, I mean, I certainly see a lot of connections between all the writers you mentioned. Mm. Nell Zink would be another one, I guess. That's sort of... But, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think... It's definitely not autofiction because it's not... None of the characters are me. Although, and then I think this is like... <coughs> this is just regular old fiction in that 
of course, they're, they're all me as well. I mean, I think Flaubert, you know, I mean, it's not like that's new. Uh, but that's, so yeah, so I mean, I think that, that um, and of course, there, there are lots of men who write autofiction too, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I just think of it as fiction, okay. you know? But I, I'm happy to be in the crowd with those women, <laughs> you know? I think there are other things that, yeah. The, the, there are other but things the that idea of being an artist, for sure, with yeah. both Rachel and Sheila, definitely, right? You can see that there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Shall we have some questions from the audience? We have a roving mic. So I really love the book. And um, there's a lot of vulnerability in a lot of the characters. Yes. Um, and I just wondered what you think in this book, sort of what, what's your idea about the relationship between innocence and vulnerability? Because there's a lot of vulnerability, but there isn't that much innocence, huh, perhaps. Interesting. <laughs> That's innocence interesting. and vulnerability, That's okay. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think of them all as being innocent, really. Even, you know, Sarah at the end there. And, and people often ask me, who are the innocents and who are the others? And I think, you know, the answer is that everyone is both innocent and other. At, you know, at various times in, in their life, right? You start in innocence and then you end up somewhere else. Uh, vulnerability, yeah, I th they, they are all vulnerable. Even Meadow is vulnerable, right? Even though she seems invulnerable for a lot of it. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I like the way you put it. I don't, I don't know. It is a, it's a constant confusion, isn't it? Who's, w w I found the title very interesting. Yeah. Also because innocence, innocence, it, yeah. uh, you know, they're, all, they're indistinguishable as words, really, aren't right. they? So, right. the, you know, you've got... It, it's complicated. Let's have another question. In the first passage that you read, the one yeah. about the train film... Yeah, yeah. You obviously know a lot about old-fashioned 16-millimetre type filmmaking. Right. The process, the right. editing, the cutting, the hanging it up and stuff. Yeah. And you've obviously also got an intimate friendship with that sort of that canon of 16 millimeter documentary is that something you had anyway or did you do um, research uh i do a lot Thank of research you. i mean i i do it starts out being something i'm interested in already right um whether it's the phone freaking that later in the in parts of the book or the film but um and then what happens is you have to do a lot of research to pull off somebody being way more obsessed than you are at it and so in that case, it, 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 with both, um, with the filmmaking, I had a lot of filmmakers reading it and helping me and doing that. And then I did go ride the train and film, you know, I do a lot of this kind of method actory stuff. I walk, when I was writing, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of really, it's embarrassing, but I do. <laughs> it's fun. I do it because there's things I'll notice that I don't notice and I need to, and I had this body obsession. I needed to like do it, put my body on the line all the time. So I do, do that. And, um, and I do love old things, so I love finding it. It was very difficult, actually, to get the technology right because the technology changed so much. So there was a lot of difficulty with um, not making a mistake in terms of what's available, you know, mini DV, you know, when do you switch to these things. So that was like, that was making me nervous. I didn't want to screw that up. And with the phone freaking, I, I found, a, I read from the book in Portland, uh, Oregon, and I just read when it was still when I was still writing it, and this guy came up to me and he goes, "You got something wrong. I'm a phone freaker." And I was like, ah. <laughs> and so I said, "Would you read my?" And he did, and he gave me some help with it. So that was helpful too, and a lot of yeah. So a lot of research. I do like doing research a lot. You know, it's part of my immersing myself in the the land. And then for all the films I wrote about, I did watch them a lot, 
and um, just like Meadow watches mm -hmm. Citizen Kane a bunch of times, I you know I did that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it's I do try to directly experience a lot of things that I write about, but I'm not a filmmaker, so a lot of that was was borrowed expertise from other people. How many times did I watch it for the making this? Not twenty, like Meadow, but a, but a, a lot. <laughs> but Dana, just to confirm, you didn't cold call Hollywood stars. Well, okay, so there's actually, I did not. But okay, so the, so there was a crank call in there. That's real. That happened to me, um, and also. I, um, I used to be a phone canvasser for Campaign California, which is Tom Hayden's environmental group. I was a, you know, for my, in my political activist youth, I was a canvasser raising money for these various things, and I would call people. So um, I knew how to, um, so I, I called this guy Jack, who inspired Jack in the book, and he was, it was Jack Nietzsche, the record producer, and, uh, and he had that kind of like throaty voice, just like this guy, and I had this conversation with him where I, he flattered him. I mean, it was real, but he, I think he was pleased that I knew who he was, and so he gave me a bunch of money for the cause, <laughs> you know? And he was like smoking while I was talking to him and everything, and it really stuck in my mind. So I just, that was the starting point, was that Jack Nietzsche phone call. And how much you can get an idea of somebody's character, their personality, their bearing, yeah. from even that kind of yeah. short call. And how much men like to be flattered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a question. Hi. Um, you mentioned just now your the sort of activist past, and I was thinking about so with Eat the Document. There's, there's have kind you of read Eat the Document? I have. Yes. Oh wow. Um, so there's so there's an, a kind of obvious interest in, in yeah. counterculture and, yes. and the politics yes. of, of a countercultural activism. Yes. And although that appears not to be an innocence in others, actually that staging of the tension between mainstream and avant-garde yes. work is there, right? The po and the politics of privilege, as you sort of yes. talked about with Meadow. And so I guess I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the politics of the book or yeah. what you think novels do in terms yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really Thank good question. Um, I do think all the books have a lot of social and cultural critique. And, you know, I think of the... Um, Eat the Documents explicitly about activism. Um, and there is some of... Uh, there's definitely complicated politics about when, when Meadow's making her films, whether it's about Kent State or The Dirty War or... You know, there is stuff that comes in where you kind of, that, that, that is um, part of that. And, uh, and as you say about privilege, uh, I think in general, and I was talking about this earlier, I, you know, one of the questions I'm asking in this book, or I was trying to figure out, is like, what's this for? At one point, Jelly says, why are you doing this? Why are you making this? You know, what's this for? And I think it's very healthy to have foundational questioning and say like, you know, why aren't I doing Doctors Without Borders? instead of doing this, which, because I'm not a doctor, it's probably a good thing. But, you know, why didn't I do, so? that would be like a tangible good in the world, right? Like, what good is it? And it's okay, I think, as an artist, to ask yourself that, especially in these times that we're living in where it feels very urgent what's happening. But I will say this, and at the time, I was working a lot of that out. I don't have an answer for it, except I do think it, that you do need to be able to see the world clearly. And that work can happen in literature in a way that doesn't happen in other spaces. So we live in a moment where, you know, first thought is the thought, right? There's no revision, it's the velocity, and the technology of the moment is encouraging a kind of direction, right? And I do think that just the, 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 the form itself is countercultural, you know, that it, the, the deep, long look at something, the immersion of it, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, a book-length object. And, um, and so I do think it's an important to have that 
other way of looking at the world uh, to sustain you. But also, we live in times where the alt-right is appropriating the language of the left. They're calling themselves like the white identity politics. And I mean, I'm sure you've been hearing about what's going on in the United States. And I'm sure there are comparable things going on here. Um, and I do think it's writer's job to be precise about language and to think about language and kind of parse through some of these things uh, in the way that George Orwell talks about in you know, politics and language. And I think that, that seems to be important for this moment too, is having that precise cutting through of what is propaganda or meant to obscure the truth or meant to, ma to manipulate people to have this equivalency that doesn't exist between these two sides. Now there's an alt-right and an alt-left and they're equivalent because Donald Trump said so and his syntax made it so. And you know, we can challenge that and have an alternate phrasing of it and that's important. So language seems very important to mm -hmm. this moment, right? So it's not insignificant. And maybe it isn't the same as Dr. Zaborders, but it's still important, right? And plus, I can do that, and I can't do the other thing. <laughs> Dana, that was such a pleasure. It kind of flew by, and I have thank so many you. more questions to ask you, but another occasion. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Claire, and everybody else at the, yeah, thank at the bookshop pleasure. for having Thank you us. very much. And thank you all for, for coming. Thank, thank you. Alex Garth, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.